From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. I'm going to take another week and talk a little bit more about hope. Um, I didn't start talking about hope last week because of what we were experiencing personally. I've, I've been talking about faith over the last several times I've spoken over the last couple of months. And I noted that, you know, faith keeps your hope alive. Hope keeps your faith alive. Faith keeps you alive. So it's a component in there. And I wanted to explore it a little bit more. And so I started looking at basically what is biblical hope, kind of the big picture of of hope. And Peter got into that. And he describes what we have as Christians as a living hope. We have hope that's different than the world because we have a hope that's that's resting in the resurrection of Jesus. If there's no resurrection, then everything else is falls apart. But because there is a resurrection and because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a living hope that rests in a living Savior and we can experience it ourselves. Uh, I'm going to continue teaching on that, but before I do, because I'll go, I'll go right back to the dark side, <laughs> you know, pain, suffering, disappointment, agony, uh, because that, that's when we really need hope. But the Bible, you know, describes, like I said last week, so, so hope in a more mundane fashions too. You know, Paul was hoping he could make it to Galatia or, or Job was hoping that a tree would grow back or whatever. Um, but hope... <clears throat> isn't just something that is is there in in times of pain and discouragement and I may teach on it one more time after today cuz hope is is well and as, as it's related to faith we know that scripture that's, that says faith is a substance of things hoped for right and i remember that that i use an example of my dad when i was a kid he would he would tell us on some hot summer day well, guess what, kids? It's, it's blazing hot here. We're in Vermont. It's 72 degrees. I mean, whew, it's, uh, are we going to survive? Uh, we're going to go to the lake when I get back from work. When my dad said that, absolute trust that what my dad said would come to pass. That's faith. The hope part was anticipating the lake. <laughs> We're going, it's almost coming, it's almost coming, it's almost there. We, we, my dad said it, that means it's good as done, but the hope was the anticipation, the confident expectation that what he said would come to fruition, right? So that's kind of not a bad hope. That's, you know, so not everything about hope is coming out of pain, suffering, and agony. Uh, that was something that comes out of something good. And what I experienced personally, and I've talked to other people uh, who've experienced this as well, is that hope is crazy. I mean, it's like an adrenaline shot to the heart. When in, in the recent past, when Marilyn was, was told she had this, you know, of course, you're trying not to freak out. And you don't know anything about what's going on. And so we went and we met with her oncologist. We'd never seen this guy in our life, you know, and we're in there and he's you know, has a, a, he has a good bedside manner. So that's good. You know, it's not Dr. House or whatever that guy's name was uh, on TV. Um, so that was encouraging. But as we're leaving, he's looking at Marilyn and he's going, don't worry about this. You got this. 
when we left the house, I mean, her hands are shaking with kind of anxiety, anticipation of what's this going to be. It's all. When we left, we're in the parking garage. I mean, it's, it's just a couple hours later, and it's joy. Those words, we didn't know any more than when we went in. You know? <laughs> well, we knew the size of it and how nasty it was, but we didn't know anything good. But just those words, hope. And it was, I'm telling you, it was like adrenaline shot of adrenaline and poof. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And if you try to rationalize it, you're going, he didn't, all he said was you're going to be okay. But it was hope, hope. And I've talked to other folks here who've experienced similar things where the doctor says one thing or or it doesn't have to be a health issue, anything, just some bad report that you're anticipating. And then you hear something and hope arises. And it is like a narcotic. It's, it's visceral. It's amazing. But I'm going to teach on hope again. I just say that to say it's, even though I'm going to launch into the, the other side again, uh, hope is not something that is, has to be related to trials and sufferings. But a lot of times that's where we experience it the most. And last time I, I spoke on Peter, and of course he was talking to people who were living this uh, suffering. Uh, this week, I'm going to uh, speak about it again. Last time, I noted that I think one of the places where we can see a dramatic separation, if you want to look at the world and you want to look at the people of God and you want to see a clear division, this is a place where you can see it. Hope. How we hope in pain and disappointment is absolutely different than how the world addresses pain and disappointment. <clears throat> now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is what I'm going to launch out of. It's not really a chapter that is uh, specifically about hope, but it contains all the elements uh, because it's fighting through more pain and more disappointment, and it begins with this thought. This is 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 1. Which says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So the chapter starts with that line. It's it's admonishing, if you will. We do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 16, it says it again. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So again, we lose heart when we lose hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So Paul here, he, he's kind of bookending this, this chapter. And he's, he he starts with one thought, he ends with another thought, and then it's in the middle he's explaining it, and he's explaining to not lose heart, to not lose hope, and what he's doing is he uses himself as an example. And he's explaining to, to these folks at Corinth uh, uh, basically why some people might think that he would lose heart. Now why do you think that some people might think that Paul would lose heart in anything. Well, 
to say that Paul had been through some difficult circumstances would be an understatement to a huge degree, right? He was living through circumstances that, that you know, many of us, probably most of us, if we had to live through them, we might really be tempted to just throw in the towel, right? We would give up. We, we might lose hope. We might lose heart. And so he begins to describe the situations that he's been in, and he's pointing out some of the reasons that in himself he might lose hope. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We're pressed on every side by troubles, we are, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Now, that is just a small overview of some of the difficulties that he's experienced in, in his ministry. And I'd say that's a lot of difficulty. Um, a lot of us would just give up with any one of those, I think. But he's going, you know, we're pressed on every side. Uh, other translations would say that we are hard-pressed, which means they're being harassed. They're being pressured. And the idea behind that word there has the connotation of being hunted. They're being hunted. That's exactly the way Paul had to live sometimes. He was a fugitive. You know, he's lowered down the wall in a basket, you know. Uh, He's hunted. He's living on the lamb. He's living on the run. People are after him. And you're going, oh, come on, Larry. Stop with the melodrama. Go on. Well, it's not a conspiracy theory I'm talking about here. It's, this is Acts chapter 23, verse 12, which you I won't read. But Paul is in Jerusalem, and the Jews are so angry at him for, for teaching about Jesus that 40 men get together and they conspire in reality. Okay, They conspire in reality. This is not a theory. They conspire to kill Paul. And they all agreed that they're not going to eat They're not going to drink until they have successfully murdered him. So yes, he was hard pressed. He was hunted, literally. He's literally being hunted. I'm not trying to diminish your pain, okay, your trials. But I'm just saying that you're probably not being physically hunted by some kind of group of assassins. Right? Is that safe to say any? Anybody got some get a mark out on you? Somebody's taking a hit out you. By the way, those assassins are on a very time sensitive mission because part of what they agreed to was they aren't going to eat and they're not going to drink until they successfully offed him. So it's a severe trial. But he's quick to point out, even in the middle of that, that in spite of that minute to minute stress of being hunted like an animal, you know, he's not crushed. He's still serving God. He has not lost heart. 
He has not lost hope. So Paul's life, um, it's hard for sure. Um, And it's mostly hard because of his devotion to Jesus and to the gospel of Jesus. He's hard pressed, he's perplexed, he's hunted, he's knocked down. But for every difficulty that he's going through, he's saying, not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. All right? So he's not living this kind of uh, defeated, depressed, despair riddled life of anxiety. You know, he is living a life that's opposite to all that. He's living a life that's demonstrating power and faith and a absolute confidence in the living, risen Jesus. So that's a life of uh, overcoming victory if there ever was one. Um, and he's experiencing that, I think, because he's living so far out on the edge that he's constantly in situations where the only way that he's going to get power and victory is that Jesus himself is going to have to protect them. Sometimes we talk about this stuff and we read these words and we read these accounts and and it can almost seem like we're, you know, we're just talking about some kind of, you know, spiritual thing, some kind of spiritual application or some religious connotation. Because it's almost unfathomable for us to really think of suffering like he's writing here. You know, by and large, most of us are going to live lives that are fairly comfortable, right? So I'm just pointing this out so we don't gloss over what Paul is actually saying about suffering. Everything he mentions is is first-hand Accounts. This is his experience. This isn't some kind of doctrinal theory that he's working out. This is his life he's living. And that's basically how it goes when you serve God. There's going to be hardship along the way. All right? I hate to break it to you that abruptly. I know. That was, that was rude. And you're, you're going, Larry, come on. You know, how dare you? I made a commitment to Jesus. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were on verse 27 of a glorious hymn. The string section was just coming in. It was swelling. It was, the ambiance was the sweet presence of Jesus. And I just knew that everything was going to be so much easier. I'm sorry. It might have been like that in the moment. But the reality is it's not always that easy. And following Jesus uh, can be difficult, all right? You're at least going to have seasons, okay? You're going to at least have some seasons where you feel hard-pressed or you feel perplexed or persecution might come your way or you might feel struck down. Those things are going to happen. And the truth is if you never get any of that, And you specifically never get any of that as a result of following Jesus. You might be doing it wrong. (laughs) Right? Now, I'm not saying go out and look for trouble. Oh, yeah, I'm not experiencing it. I better go. I'll go kick the enemy in the shins. I I need a little trouble my way. Come and No, don't do that. Don't be stupid. You know, uh, don't go out and try to be some kind of uh, troll on social media for Jesus. Boy, I don't like those ones. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm just asking, you know, have you ever been in such a mess that if Jesus didn't rescue you, you're toast? That's where Paul lived all the time. Well, you know, Larry, all I want to do is have an apostolic ministry. I just want the power and the goodness of God to flow through me. Wonderful. You know, are you sure? Think of what happened to those apostles. All but one were martyred. Yeah. The early bishops who, who led the church after the apostles passed away, uh, you know, they, they didn't become bishops because they wanted the big, the staff, the big staff and the pointy miter hat. You know, that's not what they're after. The history of the early church is a bishop was chosen from amongst the people because he had a character that most represented Jesus. And the reality was he's going to be martyred. And as he's on his way to Rome, guys like Polycarp, these, these early Christian leaders, they're on their way to Rome to meet the lions. They're dashing off letters to the church, which we still have. That's what you're going to get if you go, I just want an, an apostolic ministry. Just be, be aware of what you're looking for. Be careful what you ask for. Um, but again, Paul, Paul's words here, they're not just some kind of uh, religious uh, comments His comments are telling us that there can be a price that has to be paid. Now, life here in Middle Tennessee is lovely. We have an economy. Praise the Lord. We even had one back in 2008. Nice people live here, by and large. I feel like I need to put disclaimers in there. (laughs) For entertainment purposes only, it must be over 18 to We're living on the fumes here of previous generations of Christians. So we enjoy a certain sense of of justice and we enjoy a certain sense of uh, order. And we have this unique uh, sense of Southern friendliness even. We even have Southern cooking. All right. We got a moderate climate. It's a lovely place. Uh, We live in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest country in the history of the planet. We have it good here. And can I say for the record, I don't want to suffer. Am I clear? I'm on the record. I don't want to suffer. But sometimes I wonder, you know, is the life that I live in this wonderful place so distant? Is it so far removed from what Paul and Peter and the disciples and other great men and women of God throughout the history of church, is it so far from removed from what they have experienced that I don't even comprehend really what it is he's writing here? And again, don't, don't hear, well, Larry, you, you, you don't think my pain and suffering is real. You don't think that I'm experiencing anything that's really uh, suffering. So I should just suck up, you know, suck it up, whatever I'm dealing with, just because I don't have some you know, group of assassins hunting me down. No, that's not what I'm trying to point out. I'm just trying to make sure that we can hear the reality of what Paul's trying to communicate here. And he's not here trying to be some kind of fiery orator. Oh, those words, I'm pressed, I'm not crushed, I'm persecuted, not a bit. He's not trying to be a 
fiery orator and taking his shoe off and slamming it on a pulpit. He's just talking about his real experience, right? So when he says this in verse 10, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. It means that, that the, death, the death of Jesus was being spiritually worked in him all the time. Not unlike what Peter was talking about. He identified with Jesus. He identified with the cross of Jesus. He says, he says something similar over in Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to, oh man, this is hard to say out loud. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of of his suffering, sharing in his death, experiencing the resurrection. You know, lots of folks want want to know that resurrection power. Not many want anything to do with the suffering with him part. And I just stated for the record, I don't want to suffer. Most of us don't want to share in his death. But can I tell you, this is where I'm going. I probably need to retool my thinking. There are certain benefits that God wants to highlight in, in our lives. Um, and sometimes some of those benefits only come about from something that has been crushed. When I was a little boy, uh, Saturday nights were notoriously bath night. You're going, what happened to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? We were just dirty, okay? So lots of dirt in our house. And although we lived in Vermont, uh, my parents had grown up in Boston. So what that means is that every single Saturday night, we had a meal that we shared. It wasn't communion meal. We shared a meal. If anybody's from that area, will know what, what we ate. Baked beans and shout it out. Thank you, Val, from the Boston area. Uh, you can ask the Goodwins. You can ask uh, Melissa Jenkins' mom. They gave me some, um, some uh, brown bread in a can. That course, that goes in. It. I, it's baked beans, hot dogs, brown bread in a can. <laughs> Try it out. Yeah. Some of you are going, that's not true. And I, I have a witness from, from two, at least two people. I'm not some kind of baked bean heretic here, okay? <laughs> I'm preaching the truth. Of, at any rate, while we're preparing for this uh, glorious meal and we're taking a bath as little kids, big band music from the 1930s and 40s is blaring on our monophonic system out in the living room. But the end of the bathing ritual was when my dad would come in and he'd get me and my younger brother together and he'd get us all scrubbed up and toweled off. And the crowning glory for him in that time would be he would take talcum powder and spread it all over us. Uh, now, talcum powder, talcum powder is a mineral. Talcum is a mineral, okay? It wouldn't feel good to rub that mineral around on your body, all right? Uh, but talcum, when it is crushed 
and recrushed and recrushed some more and then added with some, uh, I don't know, cornstarch or something. Together, they would become a fragrant, fragrant smelling, uh, moisture absorbing, you know, nice feeling addition to a Saturday night bath. Now, metaphors break down, uh, and mine has already broke down. Um, probably even more so on this thing about talcum powder, because so far, in summary, I think we've said that baked beans and brown bread will raise my glucose levels. Uh, talcum powder, we, we all know now, may cause cancer. You know, uh, hot dogs are probably just bad for you, you know. Uh, but I still got that big band music, folks. Uh, and you're going, uh, okay, that actually wasn't my point. Here's the point. There are certain benefits that God wants to highlight in our lives. And sometimes some of those benefits only come about from something that's been crushed. So we offer ourselves to God. God, we're not, we're not seeking out a crushing, okay? We don't go to God, God, crush me! We don't have to run after it. You know, you don't have to turn stupid and pray to be crushed. You know, I'll, t- I'll promise you this. God knows when and God knows how to bring about a crushing experience in your life. Can I get a witness? Yes. I'm just saying that when he does, don't loathe it. Don't hate it. Realize that the Lord must be working something in us. He must be doing something great. You know, he must be doing something so that the life of Jesus can be manifest in us. So that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies, as Paul says. And that's why he continues in verse 11. He says, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus. So that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. He, he, he feels like he's always being delivered to death. And by the way, just to, you know, I say this at funerals all the time because it's true and it's a perspective. Uh, all of our bodies are dying right now. From the minute that doctor smacks you on the behind and you gasp some breath, you're headed to the land of the living, actually. You're in the land of the dying, <laughs> And you're headed to the land of the living, which is a hopeful thought. Uh, but I'm saying when he's talking about, you know, will be evident in our dying bodies, all of our bodies are dying. He's not saying you have to be strapped up and, you know, on a cross somewhere. But he feels like he's always being delivered to death. And then in verse 12, he says that death is working in us, but it's working life in you. He says this in verse 12. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. For who? Well, who he's writing to right here is the Corinthians. But it's also applicable to us. So he's going, I feel like I'm always facing death. But this death has an end result. And that's life for you, you Corinthians, which I find a little bit ironic. Because these Corinthians were a strange lot. Some of them didn't think that Paul was spiritual enough. You know, that, that kind of warps your brain a little bit if you know too much about or just a little bit about Paul. A lot of them just didn't like him. 
And so they had broken into factions in this church that he had planted. And he was having to write to them in part about some of those factions that were growing out of who followed whom. And uh, Corinth was a... uh, it was a very prosperous city. It was a very fast-growing city. It was a very important city. Um, it sat on an isthmus. That's a hard word to say, isthmus. Uh, think Panama. <laughs> okay. And kind of like, Pan- like Panama, they eventually built a canal across that isthmus. Um, but at the time of Paul, it had not yet been built. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid that word from now on. Uh, but because that area of land was only four and a half miles wide, they didn't have a canal there. But what they do is they take boats uh, on one side and they put rollers underneath them and they would roll it four and a half miles and dump it in the water on the other side. If the boat was too big, they'd empty out the cargo, roll it across the area of land and load, reload it onto another Ship uh, waiting in the water, but it was a because of that, because of its area, and and it was a very strategic uh, place. Its culture was uh, really, I don't think it was. It was not unlike our culture, meaning it was out of control, right? Our culture is out of control. Corinth was definitely out of control. And Paul's writing this this letter to the church at Corinth, the church that he had founded. To bring some correction. Um, at the time of Paul, the Corinthians were world-renowned for partying, drunkenness, and having loose sexual morals. There was a term, which I will now slaughter, Corinthiazomai, Corinthiazomai, and it was used to describe the Corinthians, and what it meant was to live like a Corinthian. But anybody who knew this word knew what it really inferred. It meant to be sexually out of control. That's pretty much our culture, I'd say, along with the partying and the drunkenness. Uh, so, you know, Paul's real question, and it's a question to us now, is, is, is the culture of the area influencing the church or is the church influencing the culture of the area? Last week we spoke about being aliens and exiles, marching to uh, the beat of a different drummer. Um, but the Corinthians are, some of them are going, you know what, Paul? Uh, if you were really walking with God like you preached us about all the time, you know, if you really were the man of God that you claimed to be, uh, we don't think that there'd be quite as much trouble following you around as there seems to be. You know, you're like a trouble magnet. Just go and get right with God. That's what they're saying to Paul. And Paul's responding going, sometimes I experience death in my life so that I can bring life to you. Anyway, let's go to verse 16. And he says again, so do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The word so there, it's uh, therefore or in conclusion. He's summing up everything. In conclusion, everything I just said, everything I just shared about these, these death-like sufferings, these death-like afflictions, these God-ordained crushings, they have the, 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 the benefit. 
when it happens, it releases the benefit of me being able to offer even more effective ministry to you. That's the end result of the crushing and the death. So even though the result of of this is hard for me, the actual real result is that I don't lose heart. I don't lose hope. In fact, it makes me have hope. So that's why I don't give up. That's why I don't lose hope. Yeah, on the outside, you're taking a beating maybe, but the inward man is being renewed. Remind yourself of that. That's why you don't give up. Your inward man is being renewed. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. (coughs) I know things can be difficult. Yes, you might be suffering. Yes, you might be in the midst of a crushing, but there are benefits that are being released that are making you stronger. They're making you healthier. They're making you more resilient. Okay, They're making you more hopeful. Whether you feel it or not, you're being made more hopeful. And you're going, why do you think that, Larry? Well, because of the next verse. Verse 18. Well, this is 17, I guess. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That should be a perspective changer for you. Or maybe Paul's just in massive denial or something. No, I don't think he's in denial. But I am thinking, you know, I read that and I go, well, Paul, you know, they might be light for you, but what I'm feeling is not light. You know, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. It's unbearable. I don't know how much more of this crap I can take. I know I just said crap in church. I'm sorry. You understand the intensity I'm trying to convey, and I've taken exegetical license with the interpretation. (laughs) But don't you read that and go, you don't get it, Paul. Of course, we've already forgotten what he's already said about himself. But, you know, let me point out a couple of crazy things, I think, in those two verses. Here's number one. Just the craziness of that phrase. Our light affliction. Can you imagine Paul talking about his life that he's written out here as a light affliction? A few chapters later, in this same letter, he describes some of his suffering. Here's the terms. Stripes, prisons, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. Perils on the water, robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of false brothers, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among my among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, often, in cold and exposure, often. 
those were just the outward physical sufferings. On top of that, he says, this is uh, chapter 11, verse 27, and he said, uh, 28, and he goes, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So apart from all that physical suffering that he's talking about, then you've got the head games. We all know the head games. Real Real concerns I'm talking about. I'm not talking about made-up drama stuff. I'm talking about serious events going on in your lives or going on in the lives of people you care for, your children, your marriage, your vocation, your finances, your ministry, your relationships. Every area of life brings in potential daily pressure that can sometimes feel worse than actual attacks. And Paul's writing this, he's saying, I know all of that. I know that weight. So when Paul writes about our light afflictions, I mean, if Paul's afflictions are light, what does that say about ours? I'll tell you what it says. It says that our afflictions are light. Well, Larry, please do not spout pablum to me. I don't need your pablum. Well, hang on. I'm, I'm not serving you pablum there. I, I just read the word, and, and I'll tell you why it's, it's light. Because he explains it some more in, you know, in verse 17. The word of God says that it's light by the measure of eternity. This light momentary affliction is preparing us For an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whatever it is you might be going through at the moment, have hope. It's only for a moment. I mean, that's true in, just in a regular course of events in our lives, you know, right? You know, I mean, how many times on a regular basis do troubles come and troubles go, right? You know, you're some, something hits you, you it hits you hard, you get vexed, you get depressed, you get anxious, you, you get bent out of shape. It's just trouble. Oh, man, just another piece of trouble. And you think it's the biggest mess you've ever experienced. And six months later, you're looking back going, oh, that was a mess. I'm glad that's over. That's life. Most of our difficulties are like that for the moment. They come and then they go. But even if for some terrible reason you're afflicted with something that will afflict you and affect you for the rest of your days on earth, what is that in comparison to eternity? What we live on this globe is a tiny piece of what we experience in our eternal existence. It's such a small piece that even if you had to live 
every day with an unfortunate affliction, it would be small in comparison to eternity. And I know that there are people in this body, I can see faces in my mind as soon as I say that. I can see faces in this congregation who are dealing with and have dealt with long-term, hard, painful, scary stuff. And, and this life doesn't seem all that short when you're living under that type of situation. Remember last week I, I read from you... Uh, A statement from a guy named Victor Frankel. This was the guy who lived in that, well, not lived. He, he, he was a prisoner at Auschwitz during World War II, the concentration camp. And he noted that the ones who came through that nightmare, they came through the suffering, they came through the pain, they came through the torture of all those places. The only ones who did not lose hope, the only ones who did not lose heart were these. He said, these were people who had a fixed reference point beyond the world. Something they held on to that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. It's true. So even if you are suffering a long-term affliction that has not led up, I think of Susie Goodman and Terry. Susie just passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, my word. What she endured, I have rarely seen, maybe never seen. But man, how she endured it. Um, she had a fixed reference point beyond this world that allowed her to do that. Paul concurs with Viktor Frankl. Our affliction is light in part because it's temporary. All right. But he goes on to say that it's also light because of what God does in our life through the affliction. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So our affliction is, is preparing us for something awesome, something incomprehensible. The eternal weight of glory. Here's Romans 8.17. It says, this is still Paul, obviously. And, and if we are his children, then we are his heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. Only we must share his suffering if we are to share his glory. Ooh. But what of that? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present life, are not worth being compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us and in us and for us and conferred on us. Glory is tied to suffering. And God wants to accomplish in us and through us a glory that is far heavier than any affliction you might go through. So Paul's going, go ahead. Take all your suffering. Take all of it. Your troubles, your afflictions. Go ahead and just take it and put it on the scale. Right? Put it on the scale. You you know, some of this stuff... Uh, some of these afflictions, these are d- potentially deep things. These might be afflictions that you've never even spoken out loud to another human being. That deep. You know, you've been abused. You've been betrayed. Things that are unspeakable, literally. 
or the gossip doesn't stop, or people close to you hurt you, they hurt you to the core. Whatever the affliction, spoken or unspoken, Paul's going, gather that together right now in your mind. I'll say, gather that together in your mind. Gather it together. Because I want you right now, just do this little exercise with me. As I'm speaking, go ahead. Gather this mess of afflictions together in your mind and take a minute and just think through it and dump it all in a garbage bag. I mean, every betrayal, every harsh word, every false accusation, every disappointment, every fear, every anxiety, every actual failure, every fear of failure, all suffering, all of it, make it go in the garbage bag in your mind, okay? Make it a big garbage bag, heavy construction level garbage bag. Everything's got to go in it. Because what I want you to do, picture, I wish I had a visual up here on, I, too late for me to come up with this. I want you to picture taking that garbage bag and you know those old fashioned scales? You know, they're, they're two arms. Two arms. Yes. I want you to visualize what it would be like to take your garbage bag full of junk, bring it to those old-fashioned scales, and, and that's the picture. Take it and just drop it on the scale. What's going to happen? I wish I could show you, but I don't have a scale here or a bunch of junk. Boom. Right? It's going to just fall flat on the floor. Because it's heavy. There's affliction. There's all that junk I just mentioned. And they feel heavy because they are heavy. Now, you might not be on Paul's level of affliction, all right? You may not have an advanced degree in affliction and suffering, but you're not in kindergarten either. But guess what? That scale has two sides. We're like this now. We're like this now. Jesus himself is now going to the other side. Guess what's going to happen? He takes the weight of his glory and he plunks it down on that scale. And guess what happens to that scale? Your stuff went flying. It's, it, it's like the old roadrunner thing where he drops the anvil on a seesaw or something. Whoa, I almost fell over. Your stuff went flying as the glory of God made them light. All right? Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Have a fixed reference point beyond this world, okay? Jesus never said it's going to be easy. But his glory far outweighs all the nonsense that you have in that garbage bag, okay, that you carry around with you. I... I just recalled a movie that, that uh, what was the name of that movie? Now, I, I should never go off my notes. I am not Lundell Cooley, who doesn't have notes. Um, I saw this movie only once, but this scene stuck in my brain. I can't say I can recommend it because I can't remember what was in it. But it was called The Mission. It was back in the 1980s. 
And there are these conquistadors or something, Spanish guys in South America, and they are raping and pillaging the countryside. And and one of these guys, uh, I can't remember what happened to, to, to make him be in this condition, but he goes to a priest. He's guilty. And he goes to a priest, and the priest uh, gives him a penance. And he has to carry around behind him all the the things that were representative of who he was. He was a soldier. He had to carry his bag and his shield and his weapons and his armament. And he carries it around with him. That's his penance. And he's going out into the into the jungle, out to a mission with this priest. And they're climbing up the side of a waterfall or something like that. And he's holding on to this heavy bag of affliction, the things that represent everything. And, and the priest is going, just let it go. You're going to fall in, off this cliff. You're going to die. He won't do it. He can't let go of this stuff, this sin, this weight, this affliction is pulling him back until finally the priest reaches down and with a knife and cuts it off him, falls off. And I'm going, that was such a incredible metaphor or vision of what we do with our weight and flick we won't let go of the things we need jesus to come and smack that scale pop them out of here and get it off of us get rid of the weight because our affliction is light and could i say this affliction is something that we endure excuse me affliction isn't something that we endure in order to reach glory it's the process that creates glory Let me say that one again. Affliction isn't something that we endure in order to reach glory. It's the process that creates glory. It's it's like travail and then childbirth. Okay? So Paul says, go ahead, put all your afflictions on the scale. You can even put your thumb down on the thing if you want to. But when the weight of glory goes on the other side, game over. You'll see what a light affliction you really have. So don't lose heart. Don't lose, don't lose hope because our affliction is light. Our affliction is light compared to what others suffer. Our affliction is light compared to what we deserve. I could park there for about three sermons. Okay, What we deserve. Oh man, our affliction is light compared to what we deserve. Our affliction is light compared to the blessings that we enjoy. Our affliction is like compared to what Jesus suffered for us. Think of the distance between what you have suffered and what Paul has suffered. Big distance, I'm thinking. Probably, yes? Think of the distance between what Paul suffered and what Jesus suffered. Incomprehensible difference. Now, look, I've said it three times. I know your pain is real. I know that pain is real. Suffering is real. I love that the Bible doesn't try to sugarcoat pain. It doesn't try to gloss over it. It isn't pablum. Uh, it doesn't. It treats it the way it is. It's, it's a result of the fall. It's not trying to deny hard stuff. The Bible doesn't try to deny the hard stuff. The Bible offers hope through the hard stuff. So there is hope. And by the way, don't you dare turn a blind eye to the blessings that God has given, even in the midst of your suffering. I know life can be brutal, but I'll bet you every single person in here can think of 5, 10, 15 ways 
that God's been good to you. And you can think of them fast. Think on those things. Right? Thank you, Father. We have a reason to hope. It's not a mindless reason. It's not a leap off a cliff. It's a hope resting in a living, risen Jesus. It's a hope that is experienced in the power and the grace of God. It's a hope that has nothing to do with our great ability to work up some kind of powerful hope. Uh, In fact, five chapters from now in this same letter, Paul's going to write about his own weakness, about how he's experienced this thorn in the flesh. And then he writes about what, what God said to him. He said this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is God speaking here. It said, well, Paul, but God said to me, and here God speaks, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul continues, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. (laughs) You want the power of Jesus resting on you? Get weak. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, folks, God's grace isn't something that we can work up in ourselves. All right? His glory isn't something that we can work up in ourselves. The word for glory, the Hebrew word, it's kabod. it's, it's, It's the same word as weight. If something is heavy, if something has glory, it's weighty. It's, there's something to it. We have affliction. And in our flesh, we're weakened, but it all leads to God's glory. And when we're weak, he's strong. And let me just finish up here. I'll read this again. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient But the things that are unseen are eternal. We need to have a vision for our lives that includes things that aren't seen. That song we just say, we need to be more aware of your presence. We need a vision of unseen things. Paul meant this, especially about his own life and his his own ministry. Think about him in, in the eyes of the world. You've got this Hebrew of Hebrews. You've got Paul, whose life to many who knew him before he was a Christian, Paul's life now would be an incredible failure. You know, his career as a rabbi, he would have gone to the very top. It would have been a lot higher. He would have probably been the most famous rabbi that Judaism had ever seen. And right at the height of that career, if you will, what did he do? He left it all behind. What did he leave it all behind for? A life of hardship, a life of suffering, a life of persecution, and eventually martyrdom. Now, when the world looks at that, all they can say is, Paul, you're nuts. What were you thinking? And Paul says, no, that's where, that's where you're getting it wrong. 
You are absolutely getting it wrong. You're only looking at the things that can be seen. You're not looking at the unseen stuff. When we just focus on what we can see, our sufferings, our afflictions, our disappointments, all this stuff can just seem to overwhelm us. They don't seem so light. But when we put our focus on things which are not seen, and we say, Lord, I'm going to look at the unseen. I'm going to look to the eternal. I'm going to look for the the weight of glory. When we do that, then we can confidently say, Lord, I don't lose hope. I do not lose heart. I do not lose hope. So my exhortation to you this morning, do you want hope? Then get your eyes on what you can't see. I think the Lord is saying to his people that we're looking at material stuff too much. And when that's all you do, you limit what you think I can do, says the Lord. I'm not being prophetic. I'm trying to clarify what voice I'm speaking from. When you're just looking at material stuff, you limit what you think I can do. And I feel like the Lord's just saying, get your eyes off that stuff. And by the way, there's nothing that I can't do. Nothing shall be impossible. You're not thinking enough. You're not thinking about unseen things that are at work in you. All right. And the truth of the matter is that unseen spiritual things are greater and more powerful than the things of this world. So again, I ask you, do you want hope? Then believe what I just said. Great hope, great confidence, great trust in a sovereign God is better than a huge bank account. Do you really believe that? Well, Larry, you just had to go and ruin it with that one. We couldn't keep it all spiritual at night. You had to go and put it down where the rubber hits the road. Well, I wouldn't back away from that one. Do you believe it? That our God is better than his gifts. Now look, we may be tested, but we need to get a vision for the invisible. And again, I think God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to put your hope in me. I want you to have a confident expectation that I will do what I said I will do. I want you to know that I can do anything. And I can move in the invisible places of your heart that nobody else knows exists, where nobody else will ever see. And I can move mountains that everybody will see. Just don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Don't let the hard things, don't let the afflictions, don't let the suffering, don't allow them to turn into bitterness. All right? But I'm telling you, remaining hopeful is not an autopilot type of thing. I keep using this word because it's fun. We contend for the faith. Agonizo. 
Agonizo. You have to say it like that. Agonizo. Agony. A life and death struggle. We contend for it. We don't go on autopilot and think we're just going to be hopeful. Just take all that junk and stuff it in that big garbage bag I was talking about. Every time something comes along, every time surrender your stuff to God, every single time forgive people who wrong you, every time thank God, even in hard times, because the only thing worse than you going through all that hurt is going through all that hurt and have it be wasted for the kingdom of God. Go all through through that crap. I just said it twice. Go all through that stuff and never surrender it to God. Never even seek him in the midst of it. Never even look for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. Don't do that. If it is appointed that you have to go through a very difficult season, don't let one ounce of it be wasted. Make it profitable. Make it for your good, for his glory. And when you do that in a way that you won't totally understand or maybe even comprehend, you'll add to the weight of glory that is being worked in your life. And you won't lose hope. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Grace Church Nash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.